gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Some people were advising me to uh, ask people to get back in the game of giving us, giving this podcast or other Dispatch podcasts, good reviews at the various places where the reviews are done. I'd appreciate it. It would be nice. It would be helpful. Um, I got to say, when I go and visit the like Apple politics podcasts top 200 list i mean i'm i'm almost always in there you know usually well, i shouldn't say usually because i don't check it that often i'm actually i i'm often kind of starved for um politics podcasts that i want to listen to there are a handful obviously you know the ones i do listen to the editors the commentary podcast i don't listen to the dispatch podcast because i'm on it 538 i think is kind of when it's useful, it's great, um, but otherwise, but it's not always useful to me. I'm not saying it's bad or anything like that. It's just it's, you know, when I go outside of my normal go-tos, it's because I'm trying to go to school on a certain topic while I'm preparing to do TV or give a talk or write about something or whatever, and um, uh, and there just aren't that many politics podcasts that I find useful and the, um, and I'm always like going through that list when I'm searching for another one. It's usually like on weekends, like if I got to do a Sunday show, um, there's, uh, there's this, you know, this, this desert of fresh content, um, for breaking news and that kind of stuff. And I, I'll look through it and, the, the podcasts that are on there that are supposed to be about politics, I mean, just a lot of it is stuff I would never listen to. And it's kind of depressing, you know, to see um, some of that stuff in there. I'm sure there are people who see my podcast in there and they find it depressing, too. This is just a subjective taste kind of thing. But, you know, some of the like, like I'm sorry, but like Candace Owens podcast and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's, you know, Charlie Kirk. Um, like that's it just I find it depressing sometimes but so like it uh, I don't know how good it is for boosting this stuff people say it is um I know that the algorithms or the formula for the top podcast thing is kind of I find it dubious at times because I actually know what the actual downloads or in the past I've known what the actual download numbers are for some podcasts um I had access to the numbers and then you see where they rank and it's clear that I'm not saying it's rigged or it's fake or it's fraudulent, um, but I think it's a lot like the New York Times bestseller list that no one knows the formula to that either. Intensity of rise or uh, rapidity of rise or um, boosts the, the algorithm. So like a podcast with um, say 50,000 downloads, but it's a static, regular, in and out, week in and week out kind of download rate might be at like, I don't know, 75 on the list. I'm just making up a number. Um, and then a new podcast comes out and gets like 25,000 downloads in a day. Um, that intensity will boost it to like top 10. At least that's my theory. I, I know the New York Times bestseller list works a little bit like that. Um, I don't know, or I, I should say, 
I know that it worked like that. They change the formula all the time, um, or at least they allegedly do. Um, but anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about this. I don't know. I feel like Elaine and Seinfeld, who thinks everybody thinks the um, stock options at Jay Peterman are fascinating when it, only she does. So I'll stop talking about this. Um, so I, I broke my losing streak in my own mind. I mean, uh, people are very generous and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that they were bad, but they were not. I, I mentioned recently that I haven't liked what I've been writing lately. Um, and uh, which doesn't mean I think it's bad or anything like that. I just mean that it, I think sometimes you have an idea for what you want to write and you don't feel like you nailed it. Um, and I didn't feel that way about the Wednesday G file. I've heard a lot of, I've gotten a lot of really nice feedback from people I always have this weird, I don't know if it's a Jewish thing, but I always have this kind of weird, like, what do you mean it's the best thing I ever wrote? You know, um, kind of feeling when people say that kind of stuff. I mean, I know what they're saying is a compliment and all that kind of stuff, but like, uh, there's just something about me that makes me feel like, so you're saying the other stuff wasn't good, you know, and um, which is, I know is a really stupid reaction, but as I've long said on this podcast, I don't take compliments well. But anyway, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing or anything like that, but I, I, I figured I'd call it up and do a little bit of the beginning and uh, just to introduce a, the topic because I, I kind of want to just talk about it more. So this is from the Wednesday G file, which if you were a paid member of the dispatch community, you would have in your mailboxes. One of the things I do truly love about the Wednesday G file is um, I don't have to do a dear reader gag. Um, anyway, uh, here you go. Hi. There's been a lot of commentary about two very different sociopaths, Jordan Neely and Donald Trump. I'm going to join in, but offer something different. So let's start with Friedrich Hayek. He considered common law superior to statutory law. Common law is just a fancy term for judge-made law. The benefit of judge-made law, historically, is that it was generated over time by specific cases involving flesh and blood plaintiffs and defendants who were trying to work out real world problems. The problem with statutory law, i.e. legislation from a central authority, is that it's too abstract, too top down, and too broad to account for all the complexity of real life. Judges built on a foundation of precedent by building on the rulings of judges before them and were constrained by a need to resolve the specific dispute in front of them as narrowly and efficiently as possible. Hayek also preferred common law because he believed that law was largely a thing to be discovered through investigation and the application of reason, not constructed in the air of abstraction. Judges were law discoverers. Legislators and monarchs were lawmakers. And then I quote uh, this line from Hayek uh, from, uh, it's got to be from Law, Legislation, Liberty. Uh, Hayek wrote, Until the discovery of Aristotle's politics in the 13th century and the reception of Justinian's code in the 15th, Western Europe passed through an epoch of nearly a thousand years when law was regarded as something given independently of human will, something to be discovered, not made. And when the conception that law could be deliberately made or altered seemed almost sacrilegious. Okay, I'll stop there. I just, I mean, I keep going. Um, the reason why I want to bring it up is, um, I think this is just like a hugely 
important way of um, thinking about society and law and all that. Some of you may recall, I've written about it a few times. It's uh, one of Kevin Williamson's favorite stories, uh, possibly apocryphal, but it's, 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 it's now part of canon. When Eisenhower was the president of Columbia University, there was a big debate about where to put um, a new walking path. And um, the architects said, um, oh, here we go. I'll, I actually have a passage. That I, I had written the sidebar on this topic a while back, so let me just, I'll read you this. There's a story, possibly apocryphal, about Dwight Eisenhower when he was the president of Columbia University. As the campus was expanding, the school needed to lay down some new sidewalks. One group of planners and architects insisted that the sidewalks be laid out this way. Another group said they must go that way. Both camps believed reason was on their side of the dispute. Legend has it, writes Kevin Williamson, that Eisenhower solved the problem by ordering that the sidewalks not be laid down at all for a year. The students would trample paths in the grass and the builders would then pave over where the students were actually walking. Neither of the plans that had been advocated matched what the students actually did when left to their own devices. This is, and Kevin continues, there are two radically different ways of looking at the world embedded in that story. Are our institutions here to tell us where to go, or are they here to help smooth the way for us as we pursue our own ends going our own ways? Now, Kevin's making a, a very libertarian point there, which I'm, I'm down for the libertarian point, but that's not the point I want to get at. Um, the idea that law is a process of discovery, right? That, that there are, because I actually, I, I, I'm a both and guy on this. There are some times when you obviously need statutes and legis legislation from a central authority, um, um, but they should be few and far between and they should be constrained to specific sorts of things and they should be necessary and all that kind of stuff. And they should be based, as I've written a bunch of and talked about a bunch of times here, legislation too, done right, is supposed to be a process of discovery, right? It's the schoolhouse rock thing. You have a problem in a local area. That local area germinates on it. It sends this problem to Cong to its representative. He brings it to Congress. They hold hearings. They have witnesses. They discuss the facts. They debate possible remedies. They get more hearings. They have more experts. They have get more facts. It gets uh, some sort of legislation comes out of committee. It gets debated again on the floor. Um, and then it goes to the other chamber of Congress and it gets debated again and gets changed and it gets thrown back. But it's supposed to be a bottom-up process of discovery, even when you're talking about statutes. Um, and I'm pretty sure Hayek would have agreed with that um, to the extent, you know, I, mean, I don't think he was against all laws. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll hear from some people about what his pristine position was. But um, the, the thing that I kind of want to get at, or at least tease out a little bit, is this idea that... It's called just the right thing to do, right? Forget the word law for a second, because law scares people. Best practices. That these things are sort of 
out there. The truth is out there, as they would say in the X-Files. And we can figure it out, right? This is a very Hayekian way of understanding how knowledge accumulates in a society. Um, you know, there are, you know, I've, I've talked about this a lot, you know, embedded knowledge is like this wildly important concept. Um, you know, you, I always like to ask people, you know, like how far back in time could you go before you were totally useless? Um, you know, if you don't have, if you have some carpentry skills, you can go back a pretty far away. But at some point, you're not going to even know how to use the kind of tools that people have. And you may not know how to get like two by fours out of a tree, particularly if you don't have a mill nearby and all those kinds of things. And certainly if you're a mechanic, you're like of no use in the 19th century, never mind the 15th or 10th century or whatever. And that's because we are, we are, technology builds on previous technology and the knowledge and, and expertise that went into the previous technology is sort of subsumed and embedded in the next generation of technology. So, you know, like the number of people, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the eye pencil thing, nobody knows how to make a pencil, but like the, the amount of trial and error that has gone into everyday objects all around you that most 99% of the listeners to this podcast right now, whether they're at home or in their car or uh, walking the dog, listening to it on um, AirPods or whatever, um, almost all the technology around you, you have no real idea how it works. Or at the very least, if you were left to your own devices, you wouldn't know how to make it. Now, I know there's probably some engineers and some physicists around, but you get my point. Um, and it's not just technology in the narrow sense of doodads that, you know, run on electricity or whatever, but it's the technology of, of morality. It's the technology of the law. It's the technology of government. It's the technology of social norms. Um, you know, the example I always use, and I, I'm sorry, I, I, as I'm talking about this, I realize how deeply embedded this crap is in my head because I've talked about aspects of this a lot. Um, Food, right? I think food is the example that most people can sort of grasp. Like the amount of trial and error that went into every cuisine in the world is staggering. I mean, how many of our forgotten ancestors ate a mushroom and then died or then got sick? Um, and then it, that, that information was passed on, said you can eat mushrooms that look like this, but not like this. Right. I mean, like how many times did people have to like try cooking certain kinds of meat or stewing certain kinds of vegetables or plants to realize whether or not they tasted good, whether they made you sick, whether they maybe tasted good at this amount, but not that amount, whether they made you sick at this amount or not that amount, because all poisons are determined by the dose. There are plenty of herbs that are fine without a pinch. But if you have a fistful, uh, you know, you'll, I don't know, be crapping your lungs out or something. All of that information didn't just, you know, there was no book that that came with. People did trial and error for hundreds of generations, figuring out some of these things. Just the whole idea of cooking food was something that came from trial and error. People realize, you know, it turns out that the reason why cooked food is good is one, it's great for, um, killing bacteria 
But it basically what it does is it makes certain things that you could not digest raw digestible. It basically pre-digests for you certain substances. That took trial and error. And there was forgetting, you know, that happened. People rediscovered these things. And so, you know, the best chefs in the world, I know there's all this farm to table stuff. Even they are still standing on the shoulders of giants in the sense that soldiers of giants, shoulders of pygmies and normal sized people, you know, just millions of normal people trying things, some things being successful, other people copying it, improving up on it for thousands of years. That's how you get cuisines. That's how you get cooking techniques. And like, but so even if you were really one of these, let's start at year zero cooks and understand every stage of the food production process, you're still using food products that were developed through, you know, I mean, they were developed essentially eugenically um, for thousands of years, you know, with mangles, you know, whatever stuff, you know, the whole, you know, like if you look at a banana, what a banana looked like prior to years of uh, agriculture, you know, so, you know, human meddling, it doesn't look like a banana, right? I mean, like there's some great charts you should, if I could figure out if maybe we'll find one and put it in the show notes. If not, just Google around for it. You can find it. If you look, maybe it was in, in, in a Matt, maybe it's in one of Matt Ridley's books, but you look at what everyday fruits and vegetables that are on sort of everybody's, you know, dinner table or picnic blanket or whatever, and you look at what they looked like before humans started doing that voodoo we do of, of, of selecting for certain traits, and they all look creepy and weird. Um, they do not, you know, almost none of the stuff that you see in the store in the produce section, um, looks that would look that way in the wild. I mean, some, I guess, but, um, and so like, even if my only reason I bring it up at one, cause I think it's interesting, but like two is that you, if you're a, even if you're some cook who wants to start cuisine from scratch, from scratch and reject all existing culture. You can't do it because everything from the the corn and the broccoli and the zucchini that you're cooking with to the cows and the pigs and the chickens have all been genetically modified over um, thousands of years by human beings. And uh, that's embedded knowledge too. Um, that's the key. I mean, I think, I mean, there are, <laughs> there's a lot in Hayek. Um, but one of the most important ideas out of Hayek is just the way embedded knowledge works in different aspects of life and markets and all these things. I mean, the whole, his whole point about the importance of prices is that they're full of embedded knowledge, right? That you, the end consumer just knows what a loaf of bread costs, but the, the factors that went into determining that price have everything to do with the price of oil, wars in various places, um, um, you know, the, the price, of, obviously the price of gasoline, the, the commodity prices of wheat, what labor unions are doing in this place and that place, um, and you know, weather, all, you know, various parts of the world. I mean, you can go down a very long list of things that all go in to the price of something that is invisible to the end consumer except the price, but there's an enormous amount of information in that price that 
other players in the market um, can uh, adjust their behavior because of. That's embedded knowledge too. So anyway, I, the the this this idea of discovering what the right thing to do is. What I think is sort of interesting about it, and, and Hayek kind of alludes to it in that passage earlier, is that there's a secular version of this and there's a, there's a religious version of this, right? I mean, natural law says that God, you know, the divine architect, the creator, um, put some certain rules out there for how you're supposed to behave and we're supposed to discover them, not create them, right? Um, and I think there's a interesting theological tension for some people on the right who um, sometimes get a little over their, ahead of their skis on thinking that they know what God's law is and can um, write it themselves. And I think, look, sometimes they're probably right. You know, I'm not saying, you know, they're not. Um, I'm pretty sure God is against murder. Um, and uh and then, but there's also a secular version of it, which just simply says there are best practices out there. There is, you know, if, if there are wrong ways to do something, there got to be right ways to do something. If there's the worst way to do something, there's got to be the best way to do something. And it may have to be specific or contingent to certain circumstances and all that kind of stuff, but it's out there. It's figure outable. And, um, and I think that's just a, it's a, it's a really, important way to think about things. And it, it ties into my whole thing about how I want certain arguments to be settled, right? I'm a big fan of dogma. Um, I'm a big fan of the idea that we've decided that slavery is bad. And so we don't need to debate it anymore, right? I mean, this is where I have my big disagreements with um, a lot of my um, free speech fetishists. I'm not talking about banning speech about, you know, I'm not talking about banning debates about um slavery or the Holocaust or anything like that. All I'm simply saying is, is that um, this idea that we should have a culture that says nothing is taboo, no subjects are off the table, um, is a bad idea. I think some subjects should be off the table. I, I don't see what is gained in any way from having, you know, inviting a Holocaust denier to come speak at a university. I don't see what is gained by saying, you know, we need to reopen the debate about pedophilia or slavery. Um, I want to pocket some moral victories and build on those, build on a foundation there and leave that stuff alone. Um, I don't think we should question everything. I think people who say we should, some of the most closed-minded people I've ever met are the ones who say question everything. Um, uh, you should you should be skeptical when skepticism is warranted. You should be inquiring. You should be interested in the facts and all these kinds of things. But I, I, I mean, I'm just too much of my dad's son. I just think that some things aren't worth arguing about anymore because the right side won the argument. And we, we won some of these arguments through millennia of trial and error, right? I mean, that's, that's how we got freedom of conscience. That's how we got freedom of speech. That's how we got you know, the bill of all the stuff in the bill of rights is we tried all the other ways and they made people miserable and they got a lot of blood on people's hands. And so this idea that's embedded in classical liberalism about how to organize a society is better than the alternatives. This is the whole point of suicide of the West 
is that all of the stuff, you know, that, that was, that's natural, that comes just, just by acting on our normal programming, leads to suboptimal policies, um, like tyranny and religious slaughter and, um, well, bad things. And so the civilization is a process of discovery. And I think that 300 years ago, we discovered this, this way of organizing society, this way of understanding um, human rights and, and the sovereignty of the individual. That was good. And I, you know, and so like these debates about, you know, whether we need to get rid of, you know, uh, liberalism or the constitution or all, I, I don't like the, I, mean, I, I will engage with these debates, but I don't think they're productive. I think that's a losing position to be in um, for civilization to say, let's revisit some of these long held taboos. Some of the reasons these were long held taboos is because they deserve to be taboos. Like, you know, the, the, the taboo on incest um, is a perfectly good taboo. Let's keep that one, right? The taboo on pedophilia, good taboo, solid. I, we should make it stronger, not weaker. Um, so anyway, this, the, I know I'm rambling now, but yeah, you can always switch to another podcast. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. So the reason why I brought it up in the G file was that I cannot stand the way we do public debates about, um, things like the 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 killing of of Jordan Neely. And I, I write about it at some length in the G file. I made this point also during the Brett Kavanaugh things where we we have this tendency to turn public controversies into essentially allegories. Um John Bunyan, you know, wrote the most famous and the first um and According to some people, probably the second most influential, you know, book after, after the Bible. Um, I'm not sure that's true, but it's probably the most influential novel. Um, it's also basically the first novel or close to it. Um, but it's an allegory, right? And the characters are kind of two-dimensional because they're supposed to represent big abstract concepts like love or justice or vengeance or whatever. It's been a long time since I read Pilgrim's Progress. I read it in Miss Buffano's class in 10th grade, by the way. Miss Buffano was awesome. And the problem with that in the real world 
is that Jordan Neely is an individual human being. He's or was an individual human being with specific failings that had to do with him and him alone. Other people might have similar ones, but his problems were his problems. His actions were his actions. Same thing goes uh, for Daniel Penny, the guy who put him in the chokehold. Um, Jordan Neely wasn't on that train shouting crazy weird things and, and, and freaking people out. As a representative of all homeless people, he wasn't speaking as a representative of all black people. Um, he was speaking as Jordan Neely. And, and Daniel Penny wasn't operating as an avatar for white people or white supremacy or late capitalism or any of these other things. He was a 24-year-old ex-Marine who made a specific decision in the heat of a specific moment. And, and the reason why I think our politics is so screwed up is everybody rushes to make symbols out of, out of individual people um, and to make allegories out of individual and specific conflicts or disagreements. Um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was not the face of whiteness or maleness or sexism or any of these kinds of things. The, the you know, the his accuser, who I think I don't believe, you know, in, on the on the crux of it, his accuser was not speaking for all women. Wasn't even speaking for all victims. She's speaking for herself, right? But we have this thing in this society where everybody has got to be a representative of some larger, abstract, categorical good or bad. Um, you know, some great reified, abstract thing. And I can't stand it, right? And I, I, I wrote about, I don't want to just repeat what I did in the G-file the G about that point. But like the, the part I wanted to sort of build on is, is this. So one of the great attributes of liberalism, which I don't think was invented by liberalism. I think it was drawing on traditions that go back to the Bible, both the, um, the Hebrew Bible and you know, the Christian Bible. But liberalism amplified, clarified, intensified these strains, which is that you can't judge people as representatives of a category. You certainly can't judge them in the sense of like a judge in a court as, as simply representatives of some larger group. Kings, emperors, communists, lots of group, fascists, obviously, Nazis, um, they all thought in this very tribal, very natural way of thinking about society, which is that society is a thing of groups. and if, as I put it in the G-file, if like um, a member of one tribe comes along and kills a member of your tribe, your tribe may prefer, probably does prefer to catch the actual person from the other tribe who murdered one of your own. But basically anybody from the other tribe will do, right? That's how mob wars work is, uh, you know, you take one of ours, we take one of yours. If you read the literature about, you know, the spontaneous order of prison gangs, 
they have very strict rules about this kind of tit-for-tat thing. This is basically the logic of identity politics, where you turn, you know, in college admissions, right? You, you basically digitize and commodify people by these abstract categorical attributes, you know, race, uh, gender, disability, poverty, whatever. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to get into a whole argument about all that. All I'm saying is that what you get to is a certain bureaucratic logic that says we need to add people or subtract people from these categories because they're just representatives of of some abstract aesthetic understanding about what the ideal demography of a certain population will be on a college campus. And when you get caught up in that kind of logic, what you end up doing is ignoring the specifics of the individual, right? That, that you know, this idea that black people for the purposes of admissions are, are somewhat interchangeable, I think is pernicious. Same thing with Asians or Jews or any other group. I want to get off of college admissions because that's a rabbit hole I will go down and I won't get out of. But the, my, what I can't stand about this debate about Jordan Neely um, in New York is how so many people are basically negating Jordan Neely, Jordan Neely's individuality to just simply make him a plug-and-play representative of the downtrodden or of black people or whatever and to make Daniel Penny into this plug-and-play white oppressor. And, you know, you have people like AOC and others, you know, talking about how, you know, Jordan Neely was killed for being homeless. No, he wasn't. I mean, just, just, I mean, he wasn't killed for being homeless. If Daniel Penny was going around killing people for being homeless, he probably wouldn't do it in front of a bunch of iPhones and pick someone who looked like they could fight back, right? There are lots of targets to kill if your whole point is you just want to kill people, homeless people for being homeless, for the crime of being homeless. There's zero evidence that that was um, Daniel Penny's motivation. Maybe it'll turn out that it was, but I highly doubt it. But nobody knows literally nobody knows that. And the facts that we know right now suggest otherwise, right? And um, we don't, similarly, we have no idea if Daniel Penny cared about race in this situation or anything like that, right? But it doesn't matter to the way we talk about these things is because, particularly because a lot of people in the mainstream media, particularly people in the left ideological media, they come from universities that teach you this is how you talk about society. This is how you look at things. You study society like it's an allegory and you pick characters that represent themes that you want to talk about. And not just that you want to talk about, they're the only themes that you kind of know how to talk about. And so, you know, everything, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When all you have is um, critical race theory interpretations about about society, then everything in society looks ripe for that kind of analysis. But, you know, the thing is, Jordan Neely died. The, the Jordan Neelys who die every day in the New York City subways or in New York City writ large um, from drug overdoses, from muggings, from accidents while being high. Um, uh, and they don't make the news because you can't drag in this 
oh-so-comfortable narrative about white supremacy and, and all this. And so what I, one of the things I find disgusting about the way people talk about this, this case is you're basically, they're the ones who are negating the agency and the humanity of this obviously tragic, you know, screwed up guy, um, Jordan Neely. And then instead, they're just using him as a prop. He's a commodity um, as far as they're concerned. And I find it gross. And, and, and again, I'm not going to get into a both sides thing, but the right does this kind of thing a lot too. It is embedded in the way we talk about politics right now. Um, you know, what's his name? The kid who shot people in, in Wisconsin during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, the kid from the mall, from the, what was it? Covington High School, or whatever, you know, with the MAGA hat that everybody just went nuts based on a picture because it was like they see the picture and all of a sudden it's just autofill from their mental chat GPTs about the kind of arguments that they want to have, the smug whiteness against people of color, all that garbage, right? Is we want to talk about things in these grand narratives that bolster one side or denigrate another side. And, okay, so that's the thing I talked about in the G-File. What I want to add here is um, what, you know, how this ties into Hayek's critique of social justice. Because Hayek's critique of social justice, it confuses a lot of people. You know, he, he, at one point he wrote, if there was anything, I'm paraphrasing badly, you know, if there was anything that he could, if he could only teach people one thing, it would be to understand that the concept of social justice is bogus. That is, it has all the weight of phrases like a moral stone. That was his phrase. Um, and I think this conversation kind of helps explain this point insofar as the common law approach to justice seeks, you know, it requires a specific human being with a specific complaint about a specific injustice done to him, right? This is, this is, it's an, it's, it's not just analogous. It's deeply tied into the arguments we get in, in American legal fights about standing. You can't go into a court of law and simply say, I think society is badly organized. Right? You can't go into a court of law and say, I think there is structural white supremacy in America. Judge, do something about it. That's the kind of argument you can make to a king, but we don't have kings, or at least we're not supposed to in this country. Um, you need to have a specific, you know, like so-and-so's horse ate all my corn, right? Or um, this company put, uh, you know, laxative, in the baby formula, and now someone needs to paint my house. Um, you know, like you need a specific complaint with a specific wrongdoer. And then judges are supposed to look narrowly at the facts. What did you do? What happened? Who's to blame? How can we solve this in the most beneficial way to all parties or the most just way to all parties? Because sometimes beneficial isn't just, right, to all parties. And do it as narrowly as possible so that you don't create precedents that then have adverse consequences for the cases that come in next week. 
right? If you do some sweeping thing and say, henceforth and forever, uh, all horses must have training to reject corn. Well, that's going to create all sorts of other problems, right? Um, you keep it as narrow as possible. You try to put a dollar figure or a gilder figure or whatever the currency is at the time and, and move on, right? You, you know, people go to court because they have specific gripes, specific complaints, and judges are there ideally. Obviously, it's only, this, is, this is an ideal that we pursue. It doesn't, hasn't always worked perfectly. Um, but they go into court for, with a specific gripe about some specific circumstances and judges try to fix it. And over time, the precedents from those decisions build up into what we call common law. The problem with social justice is it thinks of people and society as a canvas, right? It thinks of people as a category and it thinks of society as this sort of malleable, rearrangeable thing that um, there is an aesthetic idea in mind about what society should look like and we call that social justice. And so for the purposes of social justice, we are allowed to redistribute resources as we see fit. We are uh, free to, um, or empowered, or, or warranted, or whatever, to um, enrich certain categories of people at the expense of other categories of people. And this is what Hayek is getting at about why social justice isn't justice. It is simply a term that some people use for unrestricted power to arrange or engineer society as they want. And um, the common law approach just is, it has blinders on to all of that. And it just simply says, come tell me your problem and we'll see if we can fix this. We'll see if you have a legitimate case here. And... Um, I think this, that, that we are so accustomed because, you know, we now have common good conservatism and all this kind of stuff, which is just right-wing talk for social justice. We have this thing in society now where, where, where not enough people are just sort of saying, hey, wait a second, that's not how it's supposed to work. You know, it's interesting on it. Advisory opinions are, are, are wonderful. And I believe now number one podcast, number one legal podcast in the country David and Sarah will often say, you know, look, there's a reason why we don't do a lot of cases about trials and district court stuff and all the rest. And the reason for it is that, and that, this is my explanation, but it's, it's paraphrasing theirs. The reason for it is, is that at that, at that granular level, at that level so close to the ground, it's very hard for legal analysis uh, or legal analysts to draw sweeping conclusions or opinions about anything because it's so fact dependent. None of us, I mean, this gets to like the E. Jean Carroll case, right? None of us sat on that jury. Um, sitting on a jury is a huge pain in the ass and you are required to pay close attention to a lot of facts and a lot of details and you read people's body language and you listen to, to arguments really closely. You don't just read them paraphrased in the newspaper 
or, 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 or soundbited on TV, you listen to the whole thing and you follow people's demeanor. And yes, absolutely. People can be misled by that stuff, but the, the sophistication of them being misled is much, much greater than the sophistication of us being misled watching it outside the fishbowl, right? I mean, they may weight certain pieces of evidence or certain, you know, ways of comportment more heavily than they should, but they're on the ground watching this thing in, you know, unfold and they have more right to make those kinds of decisions than we do to gainsay them or second guess them um, from the outside. And anyway, the, the point is, is that you can't get into arguments about what the threshold of evidence should be in a capital punishment case and blah, 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 while a trial is still ongoing because you just don't have access to all the facts, the established facts, the tested facts, right? Courts have rules of evidence. What can be considered a fact? What can be considered evidence? What can be considered circumstantial evidence, right? All that kind of stuff that gets worked out in an adversarial process in a court of law. You can only really do interesting theoretical, high-level, abstract legal debate and analysis once the facts are established in a record. Then you can talk about, you know, what the right balancing test should be and all that kind of thing. But the process, process of discovery at the ground level is just very, very hard. And, um, and I think that this is what our, our politics could so desperately need is more people just saying, hey, look, I am not trying to fit this or that um, narrative to this new event, right? We are, it's a natural human thing to do. We are pattern-seeking creatures. We fit things into patterns. It's part of our evolutionary ad adaptation with trial and error, right? We are constantly trying to come up with rules that will keep us from getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or speared by, you know, um, a stranger. And um, that's fine. But like, the facts really matter. And, you know, as I put it in the Jufa, there's this, I, I think I'm pretty well established. I may be bad at it. I may be wrong. But I think I, I've done a pretty good job over the last 30 years establishing. I'm kind of into ideas. Like I like intellectual history and all that kind of stuff. I'm a big believer in the importance of ideas. Um, Richard Weaver was right in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, that ideas have consequences. But ideas are not, in a very important way, do not matter more than facts. And the example I use in the G file is, is like, and, and I get, I have these arguments all the, of this sort all the time with people where they want to argue ought and I want to argue is. And so like, uh, let's say you've been accused of just a really heinous murder um, of a little kid almost all of the punditry on TV and on the op-ed pages um, will be all about the ought, right? Um, and most of it, well, a lot of it will be, you know, you need, you know, Joe Blow needs to be punished because murdering children is the gravest possible crime, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so everybody agrees on that, right? This is like an example of that sort of, 
established dogma that we don't need to revisit. Murdering children is really, really, really bad. And I, I do wish some of the Putin apologists would acknowledge that more. Murdering children is bad. We can have arguments about should we have the death penalty for murdering children? All these kinds of things. All of those ideas are totally valid. Totally valid. Totally worth arguing about and debating. You know, what does it mean about a society that kills people? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm pro-death penalty. We can have that conversation another time. Um, these are all important ideas, all important intellectual debates. They are not more important than the fact that Joe Blow didn't murder anybody, right? If, if, if he's not guilty, then saying, but it's really important that we send a signal that, that these sorts of crimes are, are swiftly punished, that's a nonsense argument if it requires punishing someone who didn't do it, right? If you're innocent, all of those arguments are purely theoretical and rhetorical. They're part of some narrative construction thing, but they're not about the actual person, right? And the actual, if the actual person didn't commit the murder, then some other person did commit the murder and everyone's energy should be at finding that person. The facts are more important than the ideas. The facts are more relevant than the ideas. There was that cash app guy in San Francisco who murdered somebody uh, or who got murdered and everybody, including me, you know, immediately put it in the narrative of how San Francisco was falling apart. And I do believe San Francisco is falling apart, but it turned out that that murder, the facts of it just didn't fit the pattern of that storyline. You know, the, 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 the Waukesha, I think it was Waukesha Christmas parade murderer. The second it turned out he was a, just a low life criminal black guy and not a jihadist or a white supremacist or whatever. All of a sudden people are like, well, I don't want to talk about this anymore. The, the specific facts matter. And I think that too much of our politics, too much of our thinking, we just outsource to these, you know, I mean, as I might have put it in the tyranny of cliches, these tyrannical cliches, these tyrannical narratives that um, do a lot of our thinking for us and have us ride roughshod over the facts. And I see this all over the place. I mean, I, I, I think identity politics is all that. That's all it is, is that. It's reducing things to narratives um, it's treating individuals as, as members of interchangeable abstract categories. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why I wrote Suicide of the West is I think that stuff is pernicious and gross and completely at odds with what a liberal regime is supposed to look like. In a liberal regime, you're not supposed to say, well, lots of black people are murderers so therefore, this guy I know nothing about must be a murderer too, right? There's no transitive property to people's behavior. You judge individuals as you find them. That is what justice is about, is you allow the facts and the specific circumstances determine how the law or just people will treat you. Rather than say, you know, Jews have been through so much, so I'm going to give special treatment to all Jews, right? Um, or... I hate Jews, so um, I'm going to ignore the personal behaviors of any individual Jew and treat them all alike. That sort of categorical thinking is illiberal. It's also natural. It is how humans basically are wired to think, is to sort of sort people into categories. And not just racial categories, all sorts of categories, right? And if you look at the evolutionary record, if you look at the historical record, you know, 
the people judged by this kind of thinking did that kind of thinking too, and they made it easier. That's why people, you know, certain tribes would wear certain colors or have certain facial tattoos or wear other sort of insignia because those systems of distinguishing friend from foe also distinguish foe from friend, right? I mean, they go both ways. It's not just something the bad guys do, which is something that everybody did. And it's part of our wiring. And I think it is swamping so much of our public discourse. I cannot believe I have talked for 55 minutes just about this. So I apologize. Okay, so let's just talk about New York and, 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 and homelessness and all that stuff for just two seconds. You know, the thing I keep thinking about, and let me be curious, I, it's entirely possible to me. I'm, you know, my gut instinct is to be somewhat sympathetic, obviously, to, to Daniel Penny. But it's entirely possible that, you know, he is guilty of some second or third degree unintentional manslaughter thing, according to the law. I mean, I don't know what he knew about Joe Colts. And I don't know about what the, how much resistance, you know, Neely was showing in the 14th minute or anything like that. I don't know what Neely's medical condition was. I mean, there are all sorts of things. But I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Penny just given by what the facts are um, and what I'm assuming was his state of mind. But I'll wait and see from the case. That said, look, I have, it's interesting. So like, I'm not like Mr. Super New Yorker, but I, I grew up in New York. Um, I go back to New York a lot. Um, um, I'm still a New Yorker in my heart. And it's funny how listening to certain kinds of New York liberals and then certainly non-New York liberals talk about this stuff. I find some of it really maddening. I mean, the, the, there is this thing that passes for sophistication that says, you know, tolerating a certain level of crime is just the price you pay for being a cool person in a cool city. I, remember, I think it was Seth Rogen had some idiotic thing about how, what's the big deal? So I've had to replace like six radios over five years in my car because it kept getting stolen or something like that. I have, I have profound contempt for those kinds of arguments because they are so elitist. They're so privileged. If, if, if you think getting your smashed car window repaired a matter of pocket change, it's much easier to say, oh, that's just what it's like living in the city. If you can afford to keep your car in a garage and you don't get your car window broken at all, it's even easier. If you're of a certain mindset that has this condescending understanding of the lives of poor, lower middle class, struggling people, and just normal people um, of all classes who don't want to live in fear and amidst chaos. I think it's telling that this, this Penny guy, you know, as my understanding is, is he didn't live much in New York City and he, it's very possible, misread the situation, right? I don't mean about the killing. I just mean about intervening at all because there is this sort of unwritten code about New York City subways um, and New York City in general of about how you behave around the mentally mentally ill, deranged people who are sounding threatening and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it, it's not like I have a list, but it's, it's things like, you know, not making eye contact. It's weird how much of it is like how you would deal with wild animals. Like don't show fear. Um, if you run from some of these people, um, they'll chase you because they, 
something clicks in their head. And some of them won't. I mean, I'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule. It's like one of these embedded knowledge, accumulated things that, you know, it's just sort of people have different, you know, approaches to it. But there is this, you know, thing involving how you stand and your eye contact and all of these kinds of things and how you ignore people. This Penny guy doesn't seem like he necessarily had a, a intuitive, visceral, developed sense of this stuff. I remember it was funny. Um, in college, I brought some friends from college to New York and it was their first, for most of them, it was their first time in New York or at least first time on the subway. And we're all basically dressed the same, right? And some of them were bigger guys than me and some of them weren't, you know, because some of them were like jock types and that kind of thing. But all of them got messed with by homeless people, by sort of a certain kind of like subway, you know, goonish kind of guy, thuggish kind of guy who, you know, um, likes to mess with people um, on several different occasions. And, and they left me alone. It's not because I'm tougher or look tougher or anything like that. It's just that there was something about, I don't know, in my pheromones or the way the sort of those micro tells about eye contact and stuff that um, I didn't give off a tourist, a victim kind of vibe. And, um, and I just thought it was really interesting. Cause, and um, because you see in a lot of this commentary about how, and a lot of this commentary is right about how like most New Yorkers wouldn't intervene like this because that's the implicit stupid bargain that we have now in society is, is that, or at least in, in places like New York, is that you're not supposed to intervene on behalf of the normal people in a subway car. And you're not supposed to intervene on behalf of the clearly traumatized and, and, and suffering person who is freaking everybody out. Um, you're just supposed to like basically stare at the floor or your phone um, or back in the day, your, you know, your daily news or your New York Post. And hope that the people just move, the, the, the sort of scary person just moves on. And usually they do move on. But sometimes they don't. And apparently, you know, I think, you know, part of my whole COVID has made everybody crazy thing. Uh, apparently, things have gotten worse in New York um, from, you know, my many, many, many friends in New York and family members. When I was a kid in the early 70s, through the end of the 70s, Bellevue, I talked about this last time we talked about homeless. Bellevue every spring would release all of these mentally ill homeless people because the law required them to get scooped up in wintertime when it was too dangerous to sleep on the streets. And so they would warehouse them somewhere, um, mental wards, whatever. I, we always called it Bellevue. I don't know if they were all in Bellevue, um, but they came from Bellevue's direction, I guess. Bellevue was a mental hospital. And every spring, they would just start appearing on the Upper West Side, walking down Broadway, um, these sort of Thorazine zombies. And there was one woman who was sort of almost walking dead-like in my memory in the sense that she was, she looked really, really unwell. She screamed obscenities. She was usually fairly well dressed in the sense that she would wear lots of layers and skirts and that kind of stuff, but it looked like she'd been wearing them for years. So they were dirty and all that kind of stuff. She would eat food out of the garbage. She would scare, you yell at little kids. And one time when my brother was probably 10, 
maybe 11, something like that. Uh, Josh was crossing Broadway on 84th Street and this woman was going the other way and Josh wasn't doing anything. And this woman was just shouting and muttering and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And the woman reached out and scratched Josh on the face. Like, sort of like it was, a, and I wasn't there to see it, but this is the way I remember Josh talking about it. It was so, like, maybe it was supposed to be a slap. It was that kind of swing. So it was a really hard swing. And she had long nails um, or long enough nails and scratched Josh across the face so that he had three or four deep scabs across his cheek. And he was a kid. I mean, deep scabs um, from these scratches. And, you know, he's lucky given this woman's hygiene that he didn't get some terrible infection. I don't remember if they took him to the doctor for it. They probably did. When I say they, I mean my parents. Um, but it always stuck with me because it's just like there's this unpredictability that comes with um, some of these people because they're unpredictable. I mean, if you've never seen it, go, I assume it's on YouTube, I don't know. Go Google the videos of um, Larry Hogue, who was this homeless guy um, who mostly hung out around 96th Street between Central Park West and Broadway, um, who would fairly routinely push people, old people, little, you know, kids walking to school out into traffic suddenly. And um, I can't remember if he killed anybody, but he definitely sent a bunch of people badly hurt to the hospital. Um, and this was in the 80s, I guess. And it got so bad that 60 Minutes did a piece about it. And um, um, so I, I guess the reason I'm bringing it up is one, I've been meaning to talk about this for a while and just haven't had a chance, is like um, this idea of reducing all homeless people to a harmless category um, or a um, dangerous category is wrong. Lots of homeless people are, are no threat to anybody except themselves. Um, and lots of homeless people, I don't mean a majority, I just mean enough to say the word lots, um, are definitely a threat to people. Jordan Neely was on uh, some top 50 list of concerns about people, uh, of, of, of sort of homeless, mentally ill people of concern to the New York City system. And yet he had an arrest warrant out for, I think, almost two years. And even though social services knew where he was, they let him go, they let him do his stuff. He ended up punching an old lady in the face, broke her nose, broke her orbital bone or whatever, you know, could have easily killed that old woman. Um, I mean, 67, 68-year-old woman um, getting punched in the face is a broken nose, broken like, kind of cheekbone or whatever that orbital bone is. That's no joke. And you can see someone getting punched like that, falling down, hitting their head and dying, right? And then no one would be talking about white supremacy. It would be a story that the New York Post and maybe Fox's, Fox News covered for, for 50 seconds about how another crazy homeless person killed somebody. It's something to keep in mind is that when you're only looking for the narratives, um, sometimes the bigger story just gets ignored because it doesn't fit the pattern. All right, so what else? Oh, so <laughs> talk about all this evolution stuff and, 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 and our wiring, whatever. I got to, uh, I also, in that G file, and again, please be a, become a subscriber and you can read it. 
I got to say something about this, this, this line from Trump. I didn't put it in the G-File because the G-File was too serious and it just never seemed right to say on TV this week. Um, and I know he's just exaggerating and don't take him literally, take him seriously and blah, 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 blah. But he said in his, de- but Trump said in his deposition in the Carroll case, and then he repeated it and defended it again on the CNN town hall, this idea that for the last million years, stars have been able to uh, just simply grab women by the privates and do what they want. And um, um, again, I think it's a grotesque argument. I think it's a grotesque defense. Um, It doesn't quite jive with his claims that, you know, the Access Hollywood tape didn't reflect him and his real views and that they didn't, and that, you know, he even claimed at one point that they were fake. Um, It is, you know, and him saying unfortunately or fortunately, uh, fortunately for who, right? I mean, like, there's no defense. It's a pinata. You can smash that thing from any angle and it'll um, yield some uh, reward. But the, the only point I want to make is this freaking million years thing. What is he talking about? So like, if memory serves, you know, the oldest known uh, fossil for Homo sapiens is about 350,000 years um, back when there were a bunch of competing human life forms on planet Earth. Um and Homo sapiens may have been around considerably longer than 350,000 years, but not, but not so that long. So, like, this, this idea that, like, stars um, have been able to do this for a million years, it just, it, 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 it drives me crazy because it's one of these things where, and again, I get it. It's poetic license and, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But yeah, anyway, but, like, it's this weird rhetorical appeal to the authority of history. Um, so you're saying like if you um, um, had a reality show on the savannas of Africa 500,000 years ago, you'd be able to grab women by their privates. Um, it's just, uh, it's so ridiculous. And it just, it, it bothers me the way, I mean, I get, again, I, I haven't talked about it until now. I focused on other stuff because the other stuff is more important and more relevant, but it's just so stupid. Um, anyway, uh, other things, um, to discuss, I'm trying to remember. Oh, um, uh, I got one criticism from a friend of mine who, uh, makes a good point about the conversation about fertility and, low fertility rates that I had with Elizabeth Nolan Brown, which I thought was very interesting. And I like her, even though I have, you know, obvious disagreements. Um, But uh, uh, my friend Shay, he he DM'd me to say, or emailed me to say that um, we just didn't talk about religion at all in the podcast and the role that religion plays in fertility um, or the lack thereof. And it's a totally valid criticism. I should have brought it up. Um, but, uh, and we should have discussed it. I don't know, that said, I don't know how much, I think it has some explanatory power. Um, 
I just don't know how much explanatory power it has when you have fertility rates crashing all around the world in diverse societies with diverse notions of religion, with diverse uh, levels of religious commitment and observance. Um, I personally, I mean, yes, in the case of Israel, um, the fact that the the ultra-Orthodox have lots of kids, I think there's a tight causal um, uh, relationship with religion for their high fertility. But I don't know that that applies to Israelis in general who also have higher than normal fertility. Um, my hunch is, is that, um, you know, concepts like nationalism, um, and I don't mean sort of the garbage nationalism stuff that we talk about here. I just mean the sort of like as a feelings of national solidarity, national cohesiveness, um, having a certain sort of shared esprit de corps and ethos for society um, uh, probably has more to do with the higher than replacement level fertility rates in Israel than any sort of biblical commandments. Um, but I also think there's, there are other factors involved there too. Um, you know, I got to get Lyman Stone back on here because, you know, one of the points that Lyman Stone makes, and he's looked really closely at the fertility stuff, is that, um, um, one of the reasons, one, according to the data that, uh, um, explains low fertility is, um, just access to doing other stuff. Like any, I, I don't want to butcher or mischaracterize his thing, but he was making the point that there are some places where you are, if you were really close to great travel to fun, cool beaches and all that kind of stuff, um, fertility is delayed more than in places where you're not, you know, places where you don't have much else to do. People make babies more than places where there's just a lot of other stuff to do. And um, that's not, I mean, I have value judgments I can make about that one way and the other. But I think just as an observational thing, I think it's interesting as, as societies get more um, more as they get richer and there's a and the menu of things you can do with your time grows at the margins, other things that people used to do with most of their time are going to shrink relative to these other things. And I don't have an answer to that. Um, I think we should have more babies in the world. Um, babies are good. Um, I think that, you know, I haven't, you know, I know I talked about the vampire problem stuff before here, but like, um, I, I just don't, I've never known anybody. And I know there's a social desirability bias. People aren't going to necessarily be fully honest about some of this kind of stuff. In my experience, I just don't know anybody who ever ultimately regretted, I shouldn't say this, because there, I mean, there's specific circumstances. Again, the specifics matter. As a general rule, the vast majority of time, people are glad when they had more kids, not fewer. People were glad when they had kids earlier, not later. Again, you have to hold constant 
other, you know, other things have to be held equal there. You know, like they had, they've gotten married. I totally, I know people who've had, you know, kids very early, you know, out of wedlock and all that kind of stuff. And they regret it. They don't regret having the kid. They just regret the timing kind of thing. But, um, uh, I think having a society that put more emphasis culturally, psychologically on the, the, the joys of parenthood and the feeling of life satisfaction you get from parenthood, we'd be a better society. Um, and the, the sort of idea that, you know, one life to live and you live in the moment and seize the day and all of these things that say the point towards instant gratification and, and a lack of a sense of gratitude, um, I think lead to low fertility rates. And I am not someone who says, you know, I go, I knew for those of you who don't know who he is, Julian Simon was this great foundational figure in the, the economics of prosperity. And he was the great villain to Paul Ehrlich and the other population catastrophists and population bomb people, you know, and he always used to say, um, look, people should have the freedom to have as many kids as they want. That's basically my view. If someone doesn't want to have kids, it's not my business to tell them they have to. I will listen to their specific reasons for why they don't want to have kids. And I might have polite suggestions about why they want, want, want to rethink things. If they're a close friend, if there's just a stranger, it's just not my business to tell people what I think about their major life decisions or anything like that. But, um, uh, you know, if some niece or staffer at the dispatch, you know, or whoever took me out to lunch and asked for my advice about things, I would give it. And my advice would be, kids are good. You should have kids. If, 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 if you're on the fence about it, I would, I would lobby towards having kids. The roles, there is no, there's an actuarial, right? There's a financial argument for why it would be good if people were having more kids and it would be good for the economy if people were having more kids. It would be good for the culture if people were having more kids. It would be good for our politics if people were having more kids. I think more kids would be good, you know, all things being equal, right? But again, it's this individual thing, this common law thing about the specifics matter. No one should have kids um, they don't want to have in order to contribute to some abstract conception of what the social good is. You know, or what social justice of whether defined by the right or the left is. There is no ideal demographic arrangement of this society. Um, or maybe there is an ideal demographic arrangement of this society. But no one has the power or the right, never mind the obligation, um, to impose on other people to have them do things they don't want to do. Um, and I do think, you know, there's, there's a difference between punishing behavior um, that you don't like and rewarding behavior that you do like. Like I got no problem conceptually with tax credits that promote having kids. Um, I'm very sympathetic to Ramesh's arguments that he has been making for the 25 years I've known him that, you know, this society depends on families raising kids uh, in all sorts of ways and we should make it 
easier on families rather than on childless people if we're going to pick winners and losers at all in the tax code. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to that. But that's not to say punishing people who don't have kids is warranted. I don't think that's ever warranted. Um, and it kind of, you know, it kind of gets back to this narrative thing. We live in a society where we think that if we reward some behavior, that means we are punishing other behavior because everybody wants to be a victim. And I just don't think that necessarily holds. Um, you know, if, let's put it as a, a dumb analogy as I just wander around here like Joe Biden in the snow. Um, if a school has a policy that everybody who gets straight A's gets to go on some cool field trip, the school is not punishing people who get straight C's. The people who get straight C's are punishing themselves. Um, and uh, to the extent that society wants to reward some ways of living, some lifestyles, some so forms of social organization because they redound to the greater good of all, um, I'm more open to the idea that the state can do that. Where I'm much closer to the libertarians on this is that that's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, and this gets back to this is versus ought thing, right? Um, people, my friends on the right who are really concerned about low fertility will say, but we should reward people for having kids because kids really matter, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, and they'll say, well, well look what Hungary's doing, right? And Hungary has these, you know, incentives to have more kids. That's great. We should do that here. And my response is maybe, but does it work? Because if it doesn't work, it's sort of like the guy who didn't commit the murder. All these abstract things are fine. And I may agree with most of them. But if you don't have a answer to, and therefore what, right? If you don't have a concrete plan that's going to do something productively, lawfully, efficiently, that passes a cost-benefit analysis, all these kinds of things, then you're just talking. Then you're just saying things that you believe that have actually no connective tissue with the facts on the ground. And, um, you know, I, I think I wrote about this kind of recently. Um, in the movie A Mighty Wind, there's this scene that I, um, I just, um, I love hate because it reminds me of, um, uh, it reminds me of um, my time working for Ben Wattenberg, where Ben would often argue with me about what would be good to have or good to do. And I would argue back, I agree with you, but we can't do that right now. And I mean, I, I probably have a dozen stories along those lines to one extent or another, but I've been pretty faithful in not going deep into airing some of the dirty laundry. One of these days I will. It'll be a very fun podcast um, if I can do it in a friendly way. Um, anyway, there's a scene in The Mighty Wind where uh, Ed Begley Jr. goes to the, they're putting on this big uh, TV show uh, about folk music and folk singing. And uh, Begley um, goes and grabs like the director in the control room. And he keeps saying things like, 
he keeps, he asks him, you know, so, you know, it'd be great. He says, it'd be great to have like a, a crane shot, you know, where the crane comes down and zooms in and the director's like, yeah, it would be great. It would be great. We don't have a crane. And he says, well, you know, but a crane shot would be really great because that way you can get this whole other, and he goes, yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. Crane would be wonderful. We don't have a crane. Because of this narrative addiction stuff, so much of our politics these days is about the ought, is about what would be great. And if you, and they, we, we argue for laws and try to pass things that um, have no chance of, of becoming law, right? We like we, all of these, you know, messaging bills that come through Congress that are simply designed so people could argue about the ought, we ought to get rid of all guns, right? We should uh, control the border, but we don't write the laws or, or enter the legislative process in a way that has any chance of actually seeing a law, a piece of legislation become a law because people want to talk about the issue and do narrative maintenance rather than actually like get in the nitty gritty of like the facts and how to make things actually work. And I know I'm running long here, but whatever. Um, this morning or last night, we got rid of our Title 42 expired. And this was the law it was tied to COVID that said that during a pandemic or an epidemic, the executive branch has the authority to turn people away at the border if they're a threat to public health, yada, yada, yada. Um, it is remarkable how... Um, Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of conservatives who often talk about the importance of the rule of law, um, constitutionalism, the dangers of, you know, executive authority, how Biden is defying the Constitution by doing X, Y, and Z, argued for keeping uh, Article 42 or whatever um, uh, in place because it was the only thing that was keeping all these immigrants from crossing the border. And I get it. I'm not necessarily criticizing them for, for, for wanting to keep, you know, to secure the border, police the border and all that kind of stuff. I get it. At the same time, right, did I say section 42? Title 42. But at the same time, it's just the, the, the same people who are arguing this were also the ones saying the pandemic is over. The pandemic was no big deal. It is purely a pretextual, openly you know, instrumental argument to say we should use this law that fights pandemics to keep people out, even though we don't think there's a pandemic anymore and there's no state of emergency and we need to stand the state of emergency. And I get it. It's, it's grabbing the nearest tool to hand to deal with another problem. What is amazing to me is that if you take a step back and you don't put on your pundit hat about why it's so hard to get immigration rules um, or change the law or do immigration bills, if you, if you've, if you put that stuff aside and just look at structurally how our system is working, it is amazing how everybody is arguing about how the laws are inadequate to the situation at hand. And Congress as an institution hasn't changed the laws, right? I mean, if, if, if Title 42 is supposed to be a public health law tied to a state of emergency about a public health emergency, if it is no longer applicable, um, I shouldn't say applicable, um, you know, misapplicable, misusable, um, if it's no longer 
helpful at the border because the pandemic is over. Well, we could just write a new immigration law that says, here's how we're going to handle this stuff. Um, you know, the Biden administration has come up with a policy saying that they might return people, they might just turn around people there at the border. And ACLU is immediately, as of this morning, going to a judge saying this violates U.S. immigration law. I assume the ACLU is right on that. Um, we'll see, you know, but like, Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the ACLU is right about that. Well, if you think it's wrong, change the friggin' law. And it just, I think it's sort of fascinating how, you know, this entire, because of this, I would argue in part, this obsession with maintaining narratives, with maintaining the ability to have the issue rather than solve the problem, um, we can get to a place where... I don't know, are we a decade into these surges at the border? I mean, I remember they happened under Obama and they happened under Trump and now they're happening under Biden. Um, and people have been talking about how this is like the future of, uh, you know, particularly if you buy everybody who, you know, the people who talk about climate change stuff, right? I mean, they say that this is going to happen all around the world, that whole populations are going to be uprooted and, 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 and put elsewhere. Maybe I've missed it, but like, where are the people saying um, this is a huge problem and it's only going to get worse? So let's update our laws to deal with it. I haven't looked at what this this at the details of this bill that McCarthy got passed out of the House. Uh, people tell me it's dead on arrival in the Senate because it's just a messaging bill, and like even Kristen Cinema, who's kind of like born again on some of this stuff, says. You know, she's troubled by some of it or whatever. I haven't looked at the details of it. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. But the stuff I've read says it's mostly just another messaging bill. It's certainly not something that was aimed at convincing senators to get on board with it. And so, again, once you get into, like, who's more to blame stuff, and I have very strong opinions about who's to blame about all sorts of things, you miss the bigger picture about how just simply systemically, institutionally, the system's not working. Right. It's not it's not fixing problems. I mean, this was the point of comic. He's so much grief from so many people about how. You know, how our system, you know, how I, I think I began the opening sentence was something like America's decision tree has gone awry. And you know, what I meant by that was just simply that. If the parties were doing their jobs, if the voters were doing their jobs, if. Uh, the Constitution was working as intended, we would not be potentially heading into a presidential election in 2024 where you have a fundamentally, metaphysically, characterologically, in my view, objectively and obviously unfit for the presidency guy, Donald Trump, running against a candidate, an 80, by the time he runs, 82-year-old, um, candidate that a majority of Americans think doesn't have the mental acuity and physical health to be president. These are terrible friggin' choices. These are two geriatrics. I would argue, you know, it's sort of like, remember, I think it was PJ O'Rourke said something along the line in 2016. It was something like, you know, Hillary Clinton is unacceptable within normal parameters and Donald Trump is unacceptable outside of normal parameters, something like that. I'm butchering the quote, but you get the point. Like I could actually make the case that, that Trump is more mentally unfit 
than Joe Biden because Joe Biden is mentally unfit in kind of like normal ways, um, ways that people know how to like adjust and calibrate. But man, is that, def- you know, lowering standards and, um, and expectations. It is just, you know, fundamentally irresponsible that one of the two major parties is literally rushing headlong to renominate a guy who tried to steal an election, who broke our record of the peaceful transfer of power, um, who's lied about everything under the sun, you know, who's impeached twice, who just, you know, lost this civil case in which in a, under oath, he basically defended, you know, in effect, sort of was that Braveheart thing, you know, prima nocta, and is just totally morally, intellectually unfit for president. And the other party is nominating somebody who's one fall, one senior moment, one really, really, really bad, incoherent gas away from losing to the other guy. I mean, shame on both of these parties. And I, I can do the punditry and explain to you how we got into this situation, at least as far as I see it. I understand that the Democratic Party has a shabby bench. Um, and I think a big reason for that is, is that Barack Obama didn't care about his party. He wanted to shoot for the moon and swing for the fences and a bunch of other metaphors. And he was perfectly happy to cost moderate Democrats a lot of seats. Um, and the party shifted wildly to the left as a result. I mean, there are other reasons, obviously, too. But that's the situation that we're in. And I can explain to you why Trump is popular in the Republican Party and why um, all these other candidates are cowardly in terms of wanting to take them on. And they're all just hoping that somebody else will do the job for them. I can explain all of those things. But none of those things are excuses in the grand scheme of things, right? In the grand scheme of things, America is just screwing this stuff up because institutions are not staying in their lanes and doing their jobs. And, um, and it, it, you know, if you judge the system by the results, our system is really screwed up. And so I get all this grief from people saying, you know, how dare you, you know, criticize Joe Biden and the, you know, and it's not just how dare you criticize Joe Biden. It's how dare you criticize Joe Biden when you acknowledge how terrible Donald Trump is. And I just, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, we talked about this on the Dispatch podcast yesterday with Sarah. It's like this kind of both sidesism I'm, I own and I'm not going to apologize for, you know, I mean, my whole thing for seven, eight years now was that I'm going to tell the truth as I see it. Now I'm often wrong. I, that's fine. People are wrong. I've made a bunch of boneheaded predictions lately. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was. I was not as wrong as all the people who hate my guts think I am about the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, but I was wrong directionally about it. You know, that's fine. My whole point is I I wasn't going to lie and say good things about Donald Trump out of party loyalty or team spirit. And I'm not going to lie and say great things about Joe Biden out of team spirit from the anti-Trump camp. These choices suck. And, you know, the only way you can say that they, you know, that that Biden is a great choice is by, you know, doing his exhaustingly stupid, you know, don't judge me by the almighty, judge me by the alternative thing. I get it. 
but like my vote doesn't friggin' matter. And it is so irresponsible for the Democratic Party to risk a lot. And I don't mean for the Democratic Party, I mean for the country by giving us, a, you know, the, this geriatric who is, who is deteriorating. And I get it that Kamala Harris is even less popular than Joe Biden and could probably, would probably lose to Donald Trump and all that kind of stuff. But this is why, you know, this is why I am right and everyone who disagrees with me is wrong about the problem with the parties today is not that they're too strong, it's that they're too weak. And a robust, serious party that took itself seriously would simply tell Donald Trump, get the hell out of our party. You're not a Republican anymore. You cannot run in the Republican primaries. You have no place here. Um, and they would have said it a long time ago, you know. And, um, and the Democratic Party would say to Joe Biden, you know, a bunch of people would march up to the White House and say, Joe, we got a problem. You're just not, you're, you're just not up to this. Let's find a way where you can save face and exit gracefully. Let's find a way where Kamala Harris can exit gracefully and let's find someone who can win the next election. And I agree, we are way down the other path where making these sorts of statements sounds otherworldly because, you know, you can't reverse engineer this moment and take away 40 years of hollowing out of our institutions and our political parties. Um, but historians, when they look back on this, they're going to be like, wow, just America screwed up. And then they'll explain it. You know, here's what happened. Here's why we got, how America got to this place. Um, but that doesn't change the fact it's a screw up. All right. I apologize to Adam. Um, he's going to be furious with me how long this went. And um, uh, again, if you could become a subscriber, that would be super terrific. Awesome. I managed to avoid talking about Mother's Day, but have a wonderful Mother's Day. Um, I'm not going to talk about my mom here. Um, and I'll talk to you next time.